This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of James tonight, if you would, James chapter 4. Just a reminder, we are cruising through the book of James. I'm telling you, it's only taken us about a year, but we are uh, three chapters down, two chapters to go. I mean, we're just crushing it, I'm telling you. So, um, Thank you for praying this past week. I had the opportunity to speak in my uh, uh, college chapel, West Coast Baptist College in Lancaster, California. <laughs> no lie. Uh, I preached on a Wednesday Tuesday night, for like the first time in 10 years, they get snow. No light. And it's, like, it's just like a light dusting on the ground, but it's snow nonetheless. It's just like, uh, we got there, it was 31 degrees. I was like, no, 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 no. And so... Um, I greatly appreciate uh, everybody who said that they prayed for us, and uh, I, I really appreciate that. I had 40 minutes to preach, and I did it in an hour. So uh, it was <laughs> just like being at home, <laughs> just like being at home. No, I thought to myself, here's the thing. It's the only time I ever got invited. It's probably the last time I'll ever get invited. I'm just going to leave it all here. And so I, I did. And so uh, it, was a, it was a blessing. I had the opportunity to meet uh, a, a young man uh, who's going to Bible college there. He got saved at Lancaster Baptist Church uh, out of a life of, of drugs and gang activity and all types of other stuff. And uh, I had a picture. I should have put it up tonight, but I forgot. He came up to me after chapel. He said, um, uh, I got saved here at Lancaster Baptist. And, you know, I got off drugs. Uh, he said, I have five kids in the Christian school here. Uh, he says, I, I got a wife who's amazing. He says, uh, I'm studying, because, uh, studying the Bible because I want God to use my life. And here's what he said. The married Bible, uh, married Bible College student scholarship from Hui Kala Baptist Church has helped me pay my tuition the last two semesters. I thought, praise God for that. Our missions giving helps a guy in California who's trying to get his life on track, trying to serve Jesus with his life, helped him to pay his college tuition. Man, I, I said, our church family is thrilled. We're 100% behind you. If you ever need anything, man, please let us know. And I thought to myself again from this morning's message, I get to invest in stuff like that. Like, praise God for that. Uh, I, I don't give my money to some denominational headquarters somewhere and then wonder what happened with it. We get to put our, our missions dollars in the hands of people who are getting the work done. And so uh, I, I just praise God for that. I, I took a picture with him and his testimony was encouragement to me and I'm sure it was encouragement to you as well. James chapter four tonight. Uh, we're taking a look at the idea and we'll spend a, a couple of weeks here at the idea of worldliness versus godliness. Uh, these things are two different ends of the spectrum, and we'll take a look at that uh, from the passage tonight. James chapter 4, we're going to start in verse number 1 and read through verse number uh, 6 here tonight. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even your lusts and war in your members? You lust and you have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. 
We took a look at last week, the first three verses in this passage, so we won't spend a lot of time with them, but it's important that we uh, understand by way of review here tonight. First of all, our quest for the pleasure of this world is idolatry. Again, when we take a look at things like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt make no graven images, uh, we think sometimes of like carving out idols and putting them up on a shelf and praying to them. Oh, that idolatry were so simple, right? All of us could get rid of any statues that we have in the house and not bow down to them and not put food out for them and things like that, and idolatry would be settled, right? No, then we go back to the first commandment, to have no other gods before our God. And sometimes it's difficult to discern our hearts and where they stand in relation to God. It's difficult to discern our intentions sometimes when it comes to our heart for the things of God. That's why, again, I love the Bible. Because the Word of God is alive. It's quick, the Bible says. The word quick means alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's Word will help us to put a mirror up to our own lives to see our own hearts for what they are. I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit, as we as Christians read God's Word, the Holy Spirit makes application in our lives I was just talking with some friends uh, during our uh, meet and greet time. John gave it the name meet and greet. It used to be the handshaking time, but then we started fist bumping and saying, saying the fist bumping time didn't sound as uh, appropriate. And so we've gone back to handshaking, but it's still the meet and greet. And I love meet and greet. I'm good with that. Uh, but I was telling some uh, friends of mine during the meet and greet time that just about every single week of the world, probably a half dozen people walk out of a service and they say the exact same thing. Pastor, was today's message just specifically for me? And first of all, I think to myself, how arrogant do you have to be to think that I would take an entire time in the Bible and point it directly towards you? Like, you're so vain, you probably think this message is about you. <laughs> if you got that reference, shame on you, you're trending towards worldliness. We'll get to that in just a second. But, but aside from that, to think to yourself, like, how can the exact same message hit six different people in a different way so that it feels as if God was speaking directly to them? And there's only one answer for that, and it is this, the Holy Spirit of God. Simple as that. And so if you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit helps us make application. And if you're a child of God, if you've been saved or born again, you definitely have the Holy Spirit to help you make application. But as the Word examines our hearts, it points out areas of idolatry, and a desire to be liked by this world, a desire to be loved by this world, or uh, on the flip side, a love for this world and the things of this world create a system that competes against our heart for God. And the Bible calls it idolatry. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at worldliness and godliness. And, and again, I'm going to need you to, to have a little bit of discernment as we talk through and walk through these things because... Some of it will require you to unlearn some things that you thought to be so. Some things will allow you to, will cause you to have to adopt a mindset that you've never adopted before. But that's really helpful that we adopt a biblical mindset and we live our life within biblical principles. If we take a look at verse number four in this passage, he starts off by saying, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is, is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So we see, first of all, that friendship with the world is open hostility. That's what the word enmity means. And antagonistic to God. <laughs> Think of it this way. 
by being a friend of the world, it's almost like rolling up your sleeves and putting your dukes up at God and saying, hey, you want to come get some of this? Bring it on. That's the idea of being a friend of the world because it places you in an antagonistic position with God. It puts you on the opposite side from God your Father and now has made you an enemy. Again, where we get our word enemy is what comes from that word enmity. To be an open hostility and antagonistic towards God. That's what it means to be a friend of the world. But notice this. The very first two words in that, you adulterers and adulteresses. <laughs> Because God has, from the beginning of the Bible, had a covenant relationship with his people. Uh, we see God with Abraham made a covenant to, to give them a land, a seed, and a blessing. And I'll be your God and you'll be my people. God created a covenant relationship with them. When the children of Israel broke that covenant relationship with God and began to follow after Baal and other false gods of the Old Testament... God had this to say for them, and again, harsh language, but biblical language, and I'm not trying to be crude or crass. He said, you've gone a-whoring after other gods. You've made yourself a whore to these other gods. You've been unfaithful to the covenant relationship that we had to chase after these idolatrous pagan gods. You've broken our covenant that we had. In the New Testament, we have a new covenant relationship with Christ. His death upon the cross and his resurrection now instigates and kicked off the new covenant so that anyone who would come to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance can be adopted into the family of God. It wasn't a matter of being a Jew or being born into a certain lineage or a certain religious structure. Now anyone in faith and repentance can come to God and be adopted into his family under the terms of the new covenant that Jesus has created. In this new covenant, not only is God our Father, Christ our brother, but 1 Corinthians tells us this, that the picture of the marriage of a husband and a wife is actually a picture of Jesus Christ and the way he loves his church. So Christ is the bridegroom. And the Bible says that God wants to present to Jesus Christ the church as a chaste virgin would be presented on her wedding day. So that we as the church, that's you and I, again, important that we define terms. Church is not this building, it's not this auditorium, it's not this address. The church are the people who Jesus Christ has saved and called out of this world. Greek word used for the church in the New Testament, the word ekklesia, which means a called out gathering. So even by the word church, you and I were taken out of something and placed into something else. And we were taken out of this world and placed into the body of Christ or in Christ himself. That's important because we're going to get to that in just a second. So if we as the church are the bride of Christ and Christ is the groom, stay with me for just a second. We as the church are the bride, Christ is the groom. When you and I chase after the things of this world, that makes us, according to verse number four, adulterers and adulteresses. We've been unfaithful to our groom. We've been unfaithful to our covenant relationship with our spouse, which is Christ. And that makes us, just like the Old Testament Jews that went a-whoring after other gods, you and I become adulterers and adulteresses when we chase after friendship with the world. Now, this is, this is problematic on a hundred different levels because we see not only Christians who have 
for 2,000 years wanted to be well-liked by the world. We're willing to bend, we're willing to break in an effort to be accepted and be liked by the world. A new trend has arisen probably in the last, uh, in my lifetime for sure, probably the last three to four decades, where now the church who has stood for ages of being separate from the world now has the great burning desire to be now accepted by the world. Where now the church wants to be accepted, wants to be well-liked by the world. That becomes problematic because for us to be friends with the world as the church we have to become the enemies of God. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You've got to pick one or the other. One author put it this way, a world of arrogant, self-sufficient people seeking to exist apart from God and living in opposition to God. Speaking of the world, it's a world richly deserving of the righteous wrath of a holy God, dead sin against the gospel of Christ. This is the world we're forbidden to love. The world wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. The world wants nothing to do with the God of the Bible. The world wants to live its own way, do its own thing, be beholden to its own set of rules and guidelines. It's self-centered, it's man-centered. This is the world that you and I are commanded to not fall in love with. Now, some people, uh, when they're looking on the surface, cursory glance at the Bible, they look and they say, well, I see some errors in the Bible. First of all, there's no errors in the Bible. We would consider the Bible inerrant word of God. Here, and again, I don't have time to go into this tonight, but when it comes to the study of bibliology, the study of the Bible, if the Bible is wrong or errant in one area, we can't trust any of it, right? And people say, well, parts of the Bible have been corrupt. Which parts? Point them out for me. I'd love to see it. And again, I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm trying to say, show me the parts that are untrustworthy. Because if you can poke holes in the Bible and we can't believe God's word to be true, we don't have a leg to stand on. Because the Bible is the foundation of our belief structure. If we don't have the Bible, we're toast. So when you and I allow someone to say, well, we can't really trust the Bible, and we go, oh, wow, that's a really deep thought that you have there. No, it's not. That's a heretical thought that you've had. Because outside of God's word, we have nothing in which to know God. And again, it's problematic when you say that the Bible can't be trusted or the Bible has errors or the Bible is missing parts or anything like that because God has promised to preserve his word unto every generation. If God did not preserve his word, then we can't trust his word. If God did not preserve his word, he broke his promises. If God broke his promises, he can't be God. If God can't be God, then Jesus can't be our Savior. If Jesus isn't our Savior, we're in a ton of mess. And look, if we can't believe the Bible, we should just get together and sing like different kind of songs and talk about different kind of stuff and like go home. Maybe we should even meet on Sundays if the Bible's not true. So again, for us to be friends with the world... I was going back to people find contradictions in the Bible. There's no contradictions. Everything can be perfectly explained because it's a supernatural book. And again, we don't have time to get into this tonight, but if you think of two dozen plus authors who lived over a time span of thousands of years in different places of the world who had multiple different backgrounds, some of them were homeless vagabonds, some of them were kings, literal kings, Others were shepherd, others were fishermen. They create a book, we smash it all together and it perfectly makes sense from cover to cover. How does that happen? It's a supernatural book. It's the only explanation that could be for it. 
so again, people say, well, the Bible says don't love the world, but the Bible also says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. So God can love the world, but you and I can't? Oh, that's a contradiction. First of all, that is so elementary that it takes 10 seconds to actually look at the Bible and see what it says. God so loved the world, that means the people of the world, collectively, that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus did not love the system of the world, a system that hates him, a system that is irreparably broken against him, that is antagonistic towards him. He doesn't love the system of the world, he loves the people of the world. So there's no contradiction there when God loves the world but commands us not to love the world because we can't love God and love the world at the same time. We take a look at verse number four, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God, whoso therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've ever gone through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, chances are you've heard about the different Bible Greek words that are used for the word love. There's the word agape, which is God's love, and all-encompassing, selfless, unconditional type of love. Uh, we sometimes hear the word phileo, which is a brotherly type of love, our love that we can have for another person. And then there's a word that's not found in the Bible, but it's found in ancient Greek literature, eros, which speaks of an erotic, sensual type of love. And again, the idea is well-meaning of people who've, and again, I've heard tons, uh, more messages than I can count of, of people explaining the different words and things like that. Uh, the problem is, is that word, Greek word phileo, love, is actually found in other passages of Scripture used by Christ himself when he commands us to love other people, not commands us to love God. And so it doesn't always ring true. It's a good kind of idea, kind of a good framework to work out of, but it doesn't always mean that the times you see phileo, love, it's not God's type of love. But the word that you hear friendship with the world is the the greek word philia which is uh, kind of the idea of being enamored with or infatuated with the world and, and again words like philadelphia the the uh, city of brotherly love that word philo is where we get our idea of love for others or love for the world and so this idea of becoming a friend of the world makes you an enemy of god you've got to pick a side you can't have it both ways if I will be loved and accepted by God, I must live my life in such a way that is co- counter to the culture of the world. I can't have it both ways. I can't be loved by the world, a system that is dead set against our Father and against the Bible, and at the same time be loved and accepted by God. You can't have it both ways. Now again, I want to have a good testimony in the world. I want, the Bible says, let not your good be evil spoken of. The Bible says that even your enemies should be ashamed to, to bring an accusation against you because you live your life in such a way that gives honor and glory to God. I don't want to have a bad testimony. I want people to, to think well of, of me because I want them to think well of Christ. But at the end of the day, I'm not trying to win any popularity contests. I'm not trying to, to adopt the mindset that the world has, that I gotta drive a nicer car, or drive, have nicer clothes, or send my kids to a certain type of school, or have a certain type of education to be able to receive a check mark of approval from the world. I don't need to curate my social media platform in such a way that everyone looks at my life and go, wow, I wish I had the life that he has. No, that's not what we're looking at. And if you want those things, you can't at the same time receive God's blessing. It doesn't work that way. You've got to pick a side. We see that even with the Pharisees. Jesus said of the Pharisees, they go in the market with their, their long flowing robes and they say really loud prayers so that everybody hears them. They pray for a really long time. He said this, they have their reward, but it's not from the Father. 
They received the world's accolades. But if you want your father's reward, go and find a closet to pray in. Now, we don't actually have to have a closet set up that we go and pray in, okay? Sometimes people do that, and they think, well, you know, we just moved to this new apartment. I don't really have closet space. Should I get a different apartment? No, you shouldn't. Uh, the idea is that you would pray not to be seen by other people because your father which seeth you in secret shall then reward you openly. So if you're chasing after the accolades of the world, you can't do that and at the same time receive the approval of your Father. And just like we took a look at this morning, one day you'll stand before God and you won't give an account for how well you were liked by the culture. You'll give an account as far as whether or not your work was approved by the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 15 says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Think about that for a second. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a big deal. I love John in 1 John. He, he doesn't mince words. He's very black and white. He's very uh, on or off. He says this. You love the world? Man, you don't, know, you don't have the love of the Father in you. That's why. Again, if the world system of sin is attractive to you, the sins, uh, the world system of hedonism, that means the chasing after the pleasure of this world, if that's attractive to you, you don't have the love of the Father in you. So again, when it comes to godliness and worldliness, you, you, you have to pick a side. To pursue godliness, we have to reject worldliness. Worldliness is a man-centered view of the world. Everything exists for my pleasure. Everything exists for me to enjoy life. When it comes to life, I am the main character. I am the star of my own TV show, my own reality series, my own movie. I'm the main character. Everything resolves around me, and everything comes down to, am I happy? And let me just tell you, if you're not happy, the world has a hundred different ways that you can be happy. Isn't that amazing? All you have to do is watch television. All you have to do is scroll through your social media feed. The world has the answer for your sadness. And it can always be found in just a little bit more of what the world has to offer. Man, if I could lose that last 10 pounds, I'd really be happy. Man, if I could go to vacation on there, I would really be happy. Man, if my spouse could lose 10 pounds, I'd really be happy. Man, if my spouse wasn't such an ag, I'd be happy. Hey, I wonder what my girlfriend in high school is doing. I should look her up on Facebook. Oh, my goodness, she just left her husband and is just looking for a guy who would treat her nice. Wow, how about that? I think maybe I could be happy. Wow, you bought into the world's view of happiness. Because, again, worldliness is a, is a man-centered view. It's all about me. And if I'm not happy, I need to get happy. And a lack of having enough is a lack of uh, me not taking control of my circumstances and following after those things. Sometimes people, again, hear me preach and say things like we shouldn't chase after the things of this world. And they sometimes think that I'm saying that we as Christians need to take a vow of poverty. Or we as Christians shouldn't have nice things. Or uh, we should wear, you know, hand-me-down clothes or things along those lines. Look, it's not a sin to have nice things. It's a sin to fix your heart on the pursuit of nice things. That's where it becomes problematic. And again, it goes back to heart issues. 
idolatry. Funny story. Um, Trey and his family uh, moved here uh, May of last year. Upon moving here, he's living in uh, San Diego for 10 years. It's been a while since he's been in Hawaii. Didn't have any good Aloha shirts, so I thought to myself, as a welcome gift for joining our staff here at Hui Call, I'm going to buy him a really nice Aloha shirt. And so I went to the mall, and I bought, like, a nice Aloha shirt. Like, I didn't buy the ones at Costco that are, like, 12 bucks. I bought a nice one, right? Nice. Like, 100% silk nice. And uh, I gave Tim his gift. He's like, oh, man, I really appreciate it. He wore it. It was a fine-looking Aloha shirt, right? No lie. Like, five months later, we're getting ready to have our church anniversary uh, last year, Open House Sunday, October. Eight years as a church, I think to myself, I'm going to buy myself a new Aloha shirt for Open House Sunday. I go to the mall, I begin looking, I thought, wow, I really like this. this. This shirt looks really, really nice. And so I thought to myself, hey, it's our eight-year anniversary, it's in our budget, I'm going to buy it, spring for it, buy myself an Aloha shirt. I wear it on Open House Sunday and I realize Trey has the exact same shirt, just in a different color. I love this shirt so much I bought it twice, put it that way. That's how much I love this shirt. And so, funny thing, Open House Sunday, Trey decides to wear his shirt, I decide to wear my shirt, and so we're both wearing the exact same shirt on Open House Sunday back in October. Wow, right? Now, I know what ladies are thinking. You're thinking, like, one of you should have went home and changed. No, I think it's totally awesome, right? I'm not embarrassed in the least. But here's the funny thing. This morning, I was standing in my closet. You know where this is going. This morning, I'm standing in my closet, and I'm thinking to myself, like, hey, that's my Aloha shirt that I bought for uh, our eight-year anniversary. I haven't worn that shirt since October. I think I'll wear it today. And so I put this shirt on, get dressed, go down to my office. Seven o'clock, Trey comes in. I walk up my office, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so go ahead and look if you want to. Trey and I have the exact same shirt on. It's in a different color. Uh, and so we don't have to ask you who, know, who wears it better. I already know the answer to that. And so, but... I, <laughs> I didn't ask for any input. We already know the answer to that. And so, thank you. God bless you. Um, but here's the thing. Is it wrong to wear a nice Aloha shirt that you bought at the store that you didn't buy at the Goodwill? I don't think it's wrong at all. Because neither myself nor Trey finds our value or our worth as a human being by the type of shirts that we wear or how much was paid for it or anything like that. Nothing like that. I don't find my value in what type of car I drive. Is it a sin to have a wrong car? No. It's a sin for your heart to be fixed on having a really, really nice car that you're willing to go to the ends of the earth to get whatever you want. That's a problem. That becomes idolatry. And we need to guard against that at all costs. Because again, it's easy to say, I don't have any statues set up in my house that I bow down and pray towards. It's a different thing when I have a vehicle that I just stand out in the driveway and look at and go like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Look at all those suckers over there driving used cars. Look at this. Ah. Mm, that becomes problematic. Hey, look, God's blessed us in our lifetime with some really nice cars, but you know what? At the end of the day, they have four wheels and a steering wheel. That's it. They get me from point A to point B. There's no value attached to them. Hey, you need a car to borrow? Let you borrow one of my cars. I don't care. Because at the end of the day, my cars anyways, they belong to the Lord. I'm just stewarding them for him. Because it's not a sin to have nice things, but it's a, a sin to desire nice things. I'll take it one step further. It's not a sin to have nice things. It's a sin to have nice things at the expense of the kingdom. Van was uh, 
I, I love Van to death. He's, uh, he turned 20 years old this past week. He's no longer a teenager. And he's begun doing grown-up stuff like reading the news. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> love it, right? I'm so impressed. And he was like, Dad, I was reading this news article, and it said that 88% of people who buy new cars finance them. And I go, yeah. He was like, are you kidding me? Like, these people have car payments. Yes, son. Like, do you think somebody can roll up to a lot and drive off in a $120,000 Tesla and just drop cash for it? No. They're making a ridiculous amount of uh, payment for it. And he said the average American's car payment is like $680 a month. <gasps> like, I almost threw up when he said that. Like, what? Average. Average. And I thought to myself... I remember when we had a car payment that was like 400 a month, and I thought, that's an astronomical amount of money to spend every month on a car. But like almost $700? And that's not counting like insurance and gas and maintenance and oil changes? Like, wow. And you ask yourself like, wow, that's a lot of money. It sure is. And here's the thing. If you have a $685 a month car payment, and that's not your idle in life, that's fine. As long as you put God first. Now, if you can't tithe because you have a $685 a month car payment, problematic. Hey, look, that hurts your feelings. I'm sorry. We can talk about it later. I'll give you a hug. But (laughs) fact, you can't steal from the kingdom to have nice things. That's idolatry. Look, there were times in our life where Angela and I wanted to give to missions and we didn't have it in our budget. Like, the money just wasn't there. And, uh, I love the, the things they put on the internet. Ten ways to save money this month. Like, you look at them, it's like, eat at home. Yeah, we're already doing that. <laughs> Clip coupons. Yeah, we're already doing that, you know. You know walk to work. <laughs> yeah, I'm already doing that. Ride a bicycle. <laughs> already doing that, you know. Like, like, you can't get blood out of a turnip, right? There's, there comes a point where there's, there's no more money to be had. So we began to look at our budget. This is no lie. This would have been probably almost 20 years ago now. We began to look at our budget, and the only thing that we could cut was things like cable. And you know what we decided? We'll cut our cable so we can give to missions. And we began to give $75 a month to missions. Why? Because we were paying a $75 a month cable bill. And you know how I look at that? I say, praise God for that. Oh, well, don't you look back and wish you'd had cable? <laughs> no. <laughs> like, No. You know what they gave us? They gave us more time to sit at the dinner table for a little bit longer. Gave us time to wind down at night before we turned in without having to flip something on the television. Is it a sin to have cable TV? I don't think so. Is it wise? Mm, I don't know. That's a decision for you to make. But again, we, it's not a sin to have nice things. Again, at the time of the writing, Abraham was probably one of the richest men in all of the world. Take a message, tell him I'll call him back. At the time, Abraham was probably one of the richest men in all the world. You take a look at Solomon. Nobody has ever been rich as Solomon was rich, filthy rich. Was it a sin? No, God gave him those riches. But he gave him those riches to be invested in the kingdom, not to be consumed on his own lustful desires. And again, you look at Solomon. Solomon didn't do it really well. So again, when it comes down to having nice things, Christians were never called to make a vow of poverty. Christians were never called to renounce all of the world's enjoyments. We're just called to live a little bit differently. And those things can't have our heart. Man, 
how, take a good vacation. I hope you have. Hope you work hard for it. Hope you save for it. Hope you can pay for it with cash. Hope you don't put it on a credit card and then make payments for it over the next 10 years. If God's blessed you, enjoy God's blessings. Put God first and then enjoy his blessings. Man, no problem with that whatsoever. The problem comes when my heart is so fixed on that vacation that I forget about God. That now... The purpose of my life becomes that vacation or that new house or uh, that new school we want to put the kids in or getting that new job that now I've replaced the desire of my heart not with God and the things of God but with the things of this world that becomes problematic. And again, not easy to spot that type of idolatry in our lives. Sometimes we might need somebody to help us examine our own hearts. My wife is really good at helping point out idolatry in my life. And I don't hold that against her saying that in a negative way. I'm blessed that I have a wife that loves Jesus and loves me enough to say, hey, do you need to check your heart on that because uh, I'm worried for you. That's helpful to me. You see, the goal of this world is self-glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction and every form of self-serving, all of which amounts to hostility towards God. Me, 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 me. Again, we live in a a world today where everything's me-centered. It's funny, even when people want to do nice things for other people, they still want to be the center of attention. Isn't that funny? (laughs) It's interesting to me. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with LeBron James. Uh, He doesn't know who I am, by the way, but uh, we have a love-hate relationship. Um, (laughs) When the the LA Rams won the Super Bowl two weeks ago, if I spoiled it for anybody, you've had two weeks to get over it. Uh, LA Rams won the Super Bowl two weeks ago. LeBron James comes out and says, hey, we should totally have a joint parade with the Dodgers, the Rams, and the Lakers because we're all championship teams. It's like, okay, first of all, you won a championship, first of all, a year and a half ago. Second of all, there's an asterisk next to it because it was in the COVID bubble. Like, and thirdly, they just won a Super Bowl. Can you let them enjoy it without interjecting LeBron James in the center of the Super Bowl? Like, come on. But again, we live in a society where everything has to be about me, Right? You go to somebody's social media feed, and there's, not, there's very rarely pictures of, uh, you know, the sunset or pictures of a landscape. It's pictures of me doing something totally awesome that you wish you were doing, right? It's funny to me. I see this even amongst Christians. that like, hey, here's a picture of me and a guy I led to Christ. Hey, here's a picture of me and a homeless dude I just gave a meal to. Hey, here's a picture of me and a single mom that I'm trying to help. Hey, here's a picture of me. And it's just like, wait, wait, wait. Are, are, you, are you giving God glory for this or are you trying to get glory for yourself? Because if you want to steal God's glory, you've got your reward that's over and done with. But hey, look, you don't have to be the center of everything because that's a picture of worldliness, idolatry. It's all about me. And again, when you become the main character, when you become the reason that life exists, you have created hostility and antagonism towards God because get this for you to become the main character of life you have to push God out of the way 
Hey, I know this is your universe that you created. I know it's all about you. I know it's all about your glory. I know according to Revelation chapter 4, verse number 11, that I was created to give you glory. I know that even when I sit down to eat a sandwich, I'm supposed to eat that sandwich, whether I eat or drink, to the glory of God. But you move over for just a second and let me have the spotlight for a minute. And God's like, huh, no. I don't move aside for anybody. I don't think so. So we place ourselves in a hostile situation with God when we begin to adopt the mindset of this world. Take a look at verse number five in our text. It says, do you think the scripture saith in vain the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Do you think the Bible says for no reason that inside of every single one of us is lust and envy? Now, a couple of things I want to explain about this passage of Scripture. If you have a, uh, a study Bible or a, a, a chain reference, uh, cross-reference Bible, you might look at this verse here and see that there's no verses attached to that. Normally it says, like when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, I'll have a passage that, there that he quotes. In this case here, there's no direct connection to another verse where the Scripture saith this phrase exactly. So again, some people have caused... Uh, this to maybe cast doubt on the fact that James should have been included in the canon of Scripture. And we don't have a problem with James being included because it, it passes all the uh, tests for canonicity in the Bible. Now, again, bibliology, canonicity, not a discussion for today. You should, you should study it out, though, for yourself. So then people begin to ask the question, oh, if James is quoting Scripture, yet it's not in Scripture, that means what? Part of the Bible must be missing. And again, we don't, we're not missing any parts of the Bible because God promised to preserve his word to every generation. If he didn't do that, if he's failed in preservation, we can't trust you in the Bible and God has broken his promises. So what we then come to the conclusion of when James says this, when James says the scriptures say it, the spirit lusts to envy, what James is saying is the Bible tells us that inside our hearts is wicked. It lusts, it desires, it's depraved, it desires to be fulfilled. And so I, I believe what James is saying here is that Scripture tells us that our heart is wicked. And we don't need a cross-reference for that. We don't need to quote the Bible verbatim. The Bible, the Scripture tells us that the heart lusts towards envy. So worldliness will eventually be evident externally, but it's first deeply rooted in a heart of idolatry. Eventually, you're going to be able to see on the outside when someone is overcome with worldliness. But it all starts in the heart. When, when I see people lined up at the Louis Vuitton store over at Alamoana Center, I don't think to myself, wow, here's some people that are really well off that like to spend their money on designer goods. I think to myself, are you really going to spend $8,000 for a suitcase? Like, you should go to TJ Maxx. They got suitcases for like 40 bucks. Like, seriously. It doesn't match anything, but it's like 40 bucks. Third of all, if you're going to spend $8,000 on a suitcase, I, I know for a fact you're not going to check it as luggage because have you seen how they handle your luggage at the airport? Like, no way, no how. But then I, I realize it's not about, oh, we want to buy quality items, you know, we want to buy nice or buy twice. It's a matter of, I want people to be impressed by what I have. Our, our family was in L.A. this past week, and down in the L.A. Fashion District, they have 
streets and streets and streets of counterfeit luxury goods. Why would somebody pay $15 for a pair of Gucci sunglasses? I got an answer for you. Worldliness. Simple as that. I want people to look at me and think well of me. I want people to think that I spent you know, $1,000 on a, a t-shirt. I want people to look at my hat and think that I bought a $250 baseball cap. Now again, is it a sin to have nice things? It's not. It's a sin to be in love with nice things. I have a pair of um, Air Jordan 1s, the black, red, and white ones, but like the original Air Jordans. I bought a pair of those, and I think I paid uh, less than $100 for them. You know why I bought those shoes? Because when I was a kid, I wanted Air Jordans, and my parents said, we're not paying $110 for a pair of basketball shoes. Just not going to do it. And so I got a pair of Converse that were like $60. And I always thought to myself, one of these days when I grow up. And you know what? I did. Fine. I don't care. But here's the thing. Do I want you to be impressed by those? No, I love them because I wanted them when I was in fifth grade, and I could never have them. I don't wear them because I think you'll be impressed by them. I don't wear them because you look at me like, oh, he, my pastor, he's so cool. He has Air Jordan 1s. I don't care whether you like them or not. Frankly, it doesn't matter to me. You might think that I'm a loser. I don't care. I'm not trying to impress you. Because if I was trying to impress you, you know what that is? Worldliness, idolatry. I'm going to wear this because people will think I'm the super cool pastor. I'm going to preach in Air Jordan 1 so that when people walk in, they're like, oh, look at that pastor. He's hip. He's preaching in Air Jordans this Sunday. That's so cool. Oh, wow. I didn't know most pastors out there don't know what the Air Force 1s are. It's like, please, I knew Air Force 1. I knew the Reebok pumps with the pump on the, the tongue. I had a pair of the Nike pumps that you had an external pump that you put in the side and pumped them up. Like, I, I know that stuff. But maybe I should wear that on Sunday so that you can be impressed with my knowledge of high-end vintage sneakers. Or maybe I should just wear a pair of shoes that my wife got me for Christmas because they're comfortable, you know? I'm not trying to impress anybody because to impress you requires me to adopt a worldly mindset. And when I do, I create open hostility between me and God. But it all starts in my heart. It all starts with a heart of idolatry. Look, you go over to 90% of the stores over at Alamona Center. We, tip for those who want to shop at Alamona, go to the basement. The basement has Ross, Marshalls, Old Navy, also known as Old Slavey. But uh, that's a story for a different day. And again, is it, is it wrong to have a pair of Prada shoes? Probably not. If you're looking for everybody to be impressed by your Prada shoes, it might be a sin. Is it wrong to buy things at the White Kelly outlet that have a designer label on it? I don't think so. Not if it's something that you like. But again, my, my goal can't be to impress or to adopt a worldly mindset or find my value or worth in the things that I own. Because when I begin to own things that make me who I am, then you realize that you don't own your things, your things own you. Oh man, that's a whole different problem. Again, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, all of those are heart issues. Every single one of them. So again, idolatry begins not with an external manifestation of stuff, 
It begins with a heart issue that desires to be well-liked by the world. Next. We tend towards legalism when we define worldliness as simply external. We'll get into this next week, but some of you have been in unhealthy churches before. Where it's like, oh, wow, that, that lady over there, she has a Tiffany engagement ring that her husband bought her. They're so worldly. Mm, are they? Do you know the story behind that? Oh, yeah. I saw her. She's got a Tiffany necklace. <laughs> yeah, you know how much that thing costs? Yeah. Worldly. Mm, do you know that to be so? Maybe it was a gift from her grandmother who's in heaven now. Mm, that would make you feel like dirt, wouldn't it? Oh, so worldly. Actually, it's not. It's a gift from my grandmother who passed away. She was really special to me. Oh, so it's not worldly after all. No, it's not. You don't know the story behind it. But we trend towards legalism when we say, if you don't follow these rules, if you don't do these things, then you must be carnal. You must be worldly. Uh, Then we tend towards legalism because it's not an outward manifestation. It will come out, but it starts in the heart first. A love for the world, a lust for the world, a lust of the eyes and the pride of life starts first in the heart. When we begin to point out it's simply external, we tend towards legalism. But valuing the world is very incredibly short-sighted. Again, I talked about this morning how there was once a time where I, I thought the Tesla was like the, one of the coolest cars ever. And again, every third car in LA is a Tesla. It's like not impressive. It's actually really boring. I remember when we moved to Hawaii, man, seeing like the Toyota 4Runners here, man. Like, first of all, if it's not a police officer, uh, it's, a, it's an anomaly, right? But again, you see some of these trucks, it's just like, wow, these dudes just spent like fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 on trucks. Like, I've never seen trucks like this before. And trucks like this, these big, huge four-wheel drives, they've never seen mud before. Like, I don't, I don't understand that, right? And there's a guy at our gym pulled up in a, uh, a four-door uh, Jeep, brand spanking new. I mean, this thing looked like he rolled off the showroom lot. And no lie, this Jeep rolling off the showroom lot was probably a $60,000 Jeep the way it was equipped. No lie, the dude had at least seventy-five dollars to $80,000 in upgrades on it. I'm talking about lift kits and things like that, and everything underneath it was shiny to the max. And I thought to myself, what do you... What's broken inside of you that you feel the need to display something like that? I didn't look at that and go, wow, super awesome Jeep. Can I take it for a ride? Can I take it for a spin? I think to myself, hmm. And again, not a sin to have nice things. But again, you could tell that this guy's life was his truck. He parked it away from everybody else. And when somebody swooped in and parked beside him, he actually moved it and moved it down one more stall past that. It's just like, oh, wow, I don't want to live like that. Because here's the thing. In like 10 years' time, that Jeep will be cool, but it's not going to be that cool. It'll be impressive, but it won't be that impressive. I remember when I was in high school, the Toyota 4Runner, the 1995 Toyota 4Runner. Man, it was a mean machine. You look at that and you go, wow, that's cute. You know why? Because the things in this world don't last long. You've got to continually upgrade. You've got to continually get better and better and better. Man, I remember when the iPhone 4 came out. Just like, wow, the iPhone 4. And they came out with the iPhone 4S. And you know what the S meant? It came with Siri, a digital assistant that would listen to you and do exactly what you told it to do. And you're like, wow, that's impressive, right? 
now in our house, anytime you say something that starts with the word A in our house, the Amazon Alexa chirps and is just like, I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Could you please like, shut up, you know? I don't need digital assistance in my life. How do you turn the digital assistance off? My daughter, McKeely, doesn't even say the word Alexa. She says, hey, A over there, because she doesn't want to say the name because she doesn't want it to light up blue and begin to talk to us. Like, ah, what was once so impressive now is all surrounding us, and it's actually frustrating and gets on your nerves. It's not impressive at all because the things of this world are very, very short-lived, and when you live for this world, it's short-sighted. Because your life is but a vapor. It appeareth for a short time and then vanisheth away, but eternity lasts forever. I want to live on that side, not this side. Godliness and holiness will be also evident externally, but first deeply rooted in a heart of submission to Jesus. So worldliness will eventually come out, but that's rooted in a heart of idolatry. Godliness will come out externally eventually, but it's first rooted in a heart of submission and love for Jesus. <laughs> we had the opportunity to lead a single adults group when we served on staff at a church in California. And it was, it was one of the highlights of our life up to that point. Uh, seeing people come and saved, get baptized and discipled and grown in their faith and people turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. And couples in, in our single adults group ended up dating, getting married, having kids. One of the couples in our group is now a missionary to Thailand. It's just like, what? We get to be a part of that? It was totally awesome. To see people's lives get changed. And really, that's one of the things that stoked the fire in us to, to plant Hui College, to see people's lives be changed by the power of the gospel. I remember there's this one guy who came to our, our church, and he was kind of rough around the edges, kind of longer hair, and sat in the back, and, uh, you know, he wearing some ripped jeans and a T-shirt on a Sunday morning, and that was out of the norm because this church that we went to, everybody wore a jacket and a tie and like if you didn't people look at you like hey you must be new here because obviously you're not wearing the uniform that everybody else does and uh, he came to church and you know he uh, didn't have a bible with him and so he's kind of looking off with somebody else uh, their bible and stuff and after the service was over had the opportunity to to talk with him through the gospel and i'm getting saved man it was awesome and i said man come back on wednesday night and he's like oh, i gotta work on wednesday night and i can't so we'll come back next sunday man i said we need to start discipleship to teach you how to grow as a christian and things like that and he's like i'm super excited man i'm excited for you he left, went home. Next Sunday, he came to church wearing a brand new suit that he had bought at Men's Warehouse, carrying the biggest family Bible that they sold at the Christian bookstore. I mean, like big Bible, like hold it with two hands Bible. He got a fresh haircut. And I said to him, what are you doing? Oh, I'm a Christian now. Mm, no. Go back to the ripped jeans and T-shirt. <laughs> we'll work this out later. And I felt bad for the guy because you could tell he was literally trying to play a part. I mean, the jacket that he had still had the label on the outside that told the name of the people that you're supposed to cut off when you buy it, because he, but he didn't know to cut it off. Uh, and so he was wearing a, a, a jacket that he just grabbed off the rack at men's warehouse and threw on and came to church. And I had to explain to him, godliness is not the external. That'll catch up eventually. It starts with a heart change. But what he did was he looked around and says, hey, I can do what everybody else is doing. Man, I can say amen in church. I can sing songs. I can carry a really big Bible and people think that I'm a Christian. I can use Christianese like, hey, brother, how's it going? And everybody will just think I'm a Christian. No, no, no. Godliness doesn't start by changing the outside. It starts by changing the inside. Always, 100% of the time. Look, 
When Angel and I made the decision to start following Jesus, I didn't go home and clean out my DVD collection and my music collection and throw it to the curb and uh, make radical changes in my life. It was one day at a time, but there came a point where I was just like, I can't live on both sides of the fence anymore. And I went home and I threw away all my music and my DVDs, not because somebody told me to, but because the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin and idolatry. And let me just tell you this, nobody in the world could ever talk me out of that because nobody talked me into it. The Lord did. The Holy Spirit made that connection. Look, I can give you a list of rules to follow, and you might be able to follow most of them, but at some point you're going to get frustrated by the rules that I gave you. You're going to begin to question, why do I have to follow these rules? Why is this such a big deal? Why is this so important? And again, if I could give you a list of rules to follow, that's not godliness, that's legalism. We'll talk about that next week. But godliness says, I'm fully submitted to Christ. And if that means that I don't watch R-rated movies again for the rest of my life, I'm okay with that. That means I don't touch another drop of alcohol for the rest of my life. I'll probably be better for that. If that means I get to go to church on Sunday mornings, Sunday night, and Wednesday nights to be a part of a small group, what a gift that I now have a group of people that love me and care about me. If that means that I need to let some friends go in my life that are pulling me away from my walk with Christ, I'm willing to make that sacrifice because I'm fully submitted to Jesus. Not because my pastor said that I should. And let me just tell you this. If the only reason you do something is because your pastor says so, that's a really weak reason. And let me just tell you, if you can be controlled by what I say, you're ripe for picking for a cult. That's how cults get started. Give you a list of external rules to follow, but nobody really knows why, but they don't want to upset the pastor. Hey, look, I don't want you to follow me. I want you to follow Jesus. I don't want you to be submitted to me. I want you to be submitted to Jesus. Now, is there a place for submission to the pastor in the church? For sure, in healthy circumstances. But don't do something to make me happy. Do something to make Jesus happy. That's where godliness begins with a submission to Christ. So again, it all comes back to the heart. True change begins on the inside as the Holy Spirit changes the heart of man. True lasting change in your heart happens as the work of the Holy Spirit does a work. Look, you need change in your marriage. Stop trying to change your spouse and pray that the Holy Spirit would change them. That's going to last a lot longer. You need to change something in your life. Don't download some new app or buy some new gadget to force something on you. Pray that the Holy Spirit would change you from the inside out. You're struggling with anger. Stop trying worldly ways to do that. Count to 10 before you say what's on your mind. You know, that only the one I found, again, for me, it might work for you, but I found if I'm angry and I count to 10, that's just a delay in a ticking time bomb that's going to go off anyways. I'm just wasting everybody's time by waiting 10 seconds to say something ugly and carnal, right? You know what really needs to happen? My wicked heart needs to change. That's where lasting change happens. Uh, again, change by the Holy Spirit is not behavior modification. It's not just changing your habits and the things that you do. It's changing you as a person from the inside out. Galatians chapter 6, verse number 15. Paul writes to the church at Galatia, the churches of Galatia region. It says, For Christ Jesus is neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. They're saying, oh, the, only the guys that are circumcised are the guys that are really serious about following Jesus. And Paul goes, what? No, no, no. It's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. It's about being a new creature. It's not about your external habits that are visible. It's about having a heart change into a new person. That's the important part. 
The book of Galatians, again, if you want to read through it, we preached through Galatians uh, a couple of years ago on Sunday nights. But the idea of Galatians was this. Oh, you want to follow Jesus, that's good, but you still also have to follow all of these rules to be a good follower of Jesus. And Paul says, no, 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 the, the law is fulfilled in Christ. We don't need the law plus Jesus, we just need Jesus. One author put it this way, glorifying God is an intentional pursuit. We don't accidentally drift into holiness. Rather, we mature gradually and purposefully, one choice at a time. In the Christian walk, we can't just step onto the right path and figure all is well. Get this next phrase because it's critical. Christian discipleship is a lifelong journey consisting of a series of countless steps, and each step matters. Think about that. Discipleship is a journey of a lifetime. That's not new to anybody who's been at Hui Kala for any length of time. But in the discipleship journey, it's a series of consistent steps, and every single step that you take matters. I've got to take a step towards Jesus, but just take a step towards Jesus means I have to take a step away from the things of the world. So, again, allowing the Holy Spirit to examine my life are there areas of worldliness in my wife, in my, in my life, and am I willing to choose godliness? <laughs> Sorry, it's been a long day. <laughs> Is there areas of my life that I can identify as worldly? Am I willing to change that? Maybe it's the music that I listen to. Maybe it's the things that uh, I do on the internet. Maybe it's my social media feed. I would really recommend for some of you just delete your social media accounts and delete it off your phone and never pick it up again. You'd be better off, I think. I think we set our children up for failure when we allow them access to social media. For us in our church, we have a social media account just to post things that's going on in our church and stuff like that and to get the word out to people who use social media, but I don't know of any redeeming benefit for the majority of Christians. Now again, if you can use it as a witness and you don't get sucked into it and you don't use it to compare yourself to other people, good for you, you're better than I am. And I don't mean that in a sarcastic way. I mean, like, I, I couldn't handle it that way. I constantly compare myself to other people on social media. It's just not healthy for me. And look, unsafe people recognize that there's a link between social media use and depression. <laughs> I, can, I can say that it's, it's dangerous. So maybe that needs to go. Maybe I just need to change my mindset on how people view me and stop worrying about being accepted by this world and worry about being accepted by God. Many churches these days, unfortunately, have adopted a worldly mindset for the way that they do things. You now we want to have an entertainment type of venue. <laughs> some, some churches have stopped calling it church service and referred to it as a worship experience. It sounds like an IMAX theater or something like that. The worship experience. But here's the thing. You know what? If it wasn't so sad, it would be funny. One church in Atlanta, uh, I'll just name it, North Point Community Church, pastor by Andy Stanley. When COVID first came on the scene, there were all these restrictions to meet, and basically even we had to jump through a thousand guidelines just to meet and have church services, but we were willing to do it because the church needs to gather. You know what they did in like April of 2020? They canceled all of their church services for the entire year of 2020, and here was his reason. With all the restrictions that we have in place, we cannot provide a quality worship experience that you've come to know and love. So we're going to cancel it for the rest of the year. Hmm. You know what that says? We can't provide the show and the entertainment value that you've come to love and expect. So never mind the preaching of the Word of God. We'll just cancel it for the rest of the year. 
You know why? Because when you adopt a worldly mindset, you have to follow the ways of the world. You can't backtrack and go, ah, we never needed, you know, an experience anyways. We just needed the power of the Word of God. No, you didn't. You've been building on entertainment for 20 years. And so when you have churches that are so enamored and in love with the world that they want to copy the world, and we put guys on a platform that sit on a stool and just kind of talk about things of the day, we kind of dissect the news and begin to talk about what the world's doing, and we don't mention words like sin and hell and holiness and righteousness. We just do what's right and do what God's put in you, and we speak in vague religious terms that could be applied to any religion. We've adopted a mindset of the world where we just want to be liked by unsaved people. It became really popular probably in the early 80s, and again, you can study it out. Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, Illinois, uh, created what was known as the seeker-sensitive movement. We need to find the unsaved guy in your neighborhood and find out what kind of church he likes and then cater the church to his desires and needs. Rick Warren made a boatload of cash with a book called The Purpose Driven Church. You need to go out and survey your community and find out what type of people live in your community and what type of services they want. You want a group that, uh, you have a group in your community that wants a high quality music experience and really short messages? That's what you cater your church services to. Wait, I'm sorry. I thought the church existed to please God, not the unsafe man in the community. Now, should our church be welcoming to unsafe people? No doubt about it. Should the messages be applicable? applicable? No doubt about it. Should we preach a 20-minute message? Absolutely not. Under no circumstances whatsoever. Like, I'm just, I haven't even told jokes at 20 minutes in, right? (laughs) What the world? But here's the thing. When you adopt a worldly mindset where the goal is to please the world, you can't please God at the same time. And what was interesting is that Willow Creek, uh, after several decades of this poor choice of ministry model, they actually commissioned a study to study the depth of the Christianity that they had grown up in their ministry over 30 years, and they found out that it had no depth whatsoever. And the majority of the people in their church, I think it was like 80 plus percent, did not read their Bible from Sunday to Sunday. The majority of people in the church had little to no commitment to Christ whatsoever, and that many of the people in their their church weren't even saved. And that was their own research that they had, had commissioned. And you find out... Whatever you paid for that study, I could have saved you the money and told you that. You know why? Because if you choose to be a friend to the unsaved world, you cannot be a church that pleases God at the same time. You're openly antagonistic and hostile towards God to be that type of church. Can't do it. But let's bring it home. How about you? Are there areas where you need to grow in godliness? Are there some things in your life that need to change? You need to draw a line in the sand, put a stake in the ground, Stack up some rocks and make a memorial. I don't know what you need to do, but maybe you need to say, hey, from here on out, I just want to follow Jesus. From this point forward, I just want to do what pleases and honors God. I'm tired of trying to live for the world. I'm trying to be, uh, be enamored and satisfied by the things that this world has to offer. I just want Jesus. And let me tell you this, you will never be disappointed with what you get. Have you ever gotten buyer's remorse for something? Man, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten buyer's remorse. We bought a car one time, and no lie, had not even driven it off the parking lot at the car lot. And I realized, I think we've made a great mistake here. (laughs) There's a car that we bought on Facebook when we first moved here. I thought we got a smoking deal on it, smoking deal. And the guy came, met us at the Monolua Shopping Center over by the Navy Exchange, and uh, I paid him cash for it. He gave me the keys to the car, and I said, 
uh, hey, how'd you get here? He said, oh, I walked. I said, can I give you a ride? He goes, nope. <laughs> what? Where are you going? He said, up the street. I can take, no, I'll walk. I'm, I'm good. You sure? Yeah, I'm positive. And I realized before we pulled out of the parking lot, the check engine light came on on the car. Mm. And I looked down at the bottom where you plug in the, the computer and the cap was off of it. Like he had just cleared the code right before he dropped it off. And I realized, oh man, that's why he didn't want to ride with me because he didn't want to answer questions about why the check engine light just came on. Buyer's remorse. Never one time ever in my entire life have I gotten buyer's remorse from following Jesus. It's been the best decision I've ever made. Making a decision to teach my kids the Bible. Never regretted it. Making the decision to found my marriage upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Never regretted it. A decision to leave everything that this world has to offer behind in a pursuit to follow Christ. Never one time regretted it. Selling a 3,500 square foot house at the end of a cul-de-sac in California to come live in an attic of a cement block building. Never one single solitary day ever regretted it. Why? Because I'm not trying to please the world, I just want to please Jesus. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.